Amen. Well, this morning we are starting a new series on the topic that Jesus taught about more than anything else. Okay, this was the theme and the focus of everything that Jesus said and did during his time on earth. Does anyone know what it is? Was that Eric? Money. Money. No, not quite. <laughs> There's like a great big hint. Like I thought this was going to be like, I would say, oh, you guys cheated, but it's okay. It's the kingdom of God. Okay. The kingdom of God. When Jesus came into the world and kicked off his ministry, he came proclaiming that in him, the kingdom of God had come near. This was at the heart of everything that he did, of everything that he taught. And over the last few years at Evergreen, we've spent quite a lot of time focusing on the character of the kingdom of God. We've talked about uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We did a series on that. We've worked our way through each one of the Beatitudes. We've looked at love and humility and diversity and justice and how these things get worked out in the kingdom of God. But over the next little while, we are going to focus uh, on how the kingdom of God shows up in our world. Less about what the kingdom of God looks like, less about the character of the kingdom of God, and instead we're going to focus on how the kingdom of God gets worked out in the world. Because I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that most of us have had moments over the last two and a half years where it seemed difficult to believe that the kingdom of God was really all that close. I'm gonna guess that each one of us have had moments where we looked around at the state of the world and where we read the headlines about the state of the church and we wondered if this message that Jesus proclaimed 2,000 years ago could possibly still be true today. And in this season that we're in, as we look out at the wreckage of the pandemic and as we grapple with what it's exposed in each one of us, and as we take an honest look at where we're at in the church and in society, the parables that Jesus shared about the kingdom of God and how it gets worked out in the world offer us an incredible amount of hope. Because the way that the kingdom shows up in the world is often different from what we might expect. And it can be easy for us to miss the ways that God's working in us and around us, even in the midst of all of the brokenness. And so in the weeks ahead, we're going to look at some of the parables that Jesus shared about the kingdom to help his disciples understand what was going on when it seemed like things weren't unfolding in the way that they expected that they would. Okay, but this morning, to set us up for that, we are going to look at a story from the Gospels that tells us about a defining moment in Jesus' ministry about a point of decision in the life of Jesus that set the trajectory for everything that he said and did moving forward. 
Okay, so if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Now, if we're honest, this is one of those stories that's a little bit weird, right? And so it can be easy to just kind of skip over it because we don't really know what to do, to, what to do with it. And that's partly because when we think about the enemy, when we think about the devil, we have images of like red creatures with horns and tails and pitchforks that come into our minds, right? Most of the things that we think about the devil are actually more shaped by pop culture and really by like medieval art, medieval depictions of the devil than they are by scripture, right? There aren't any pitchforks in what the Bible tells us about the enemy. Scripture talks about the evil one as some sort of creature in rebellion who hates life, who hates God, who hates God's creation, and who is on a mission to steal and kill and destroy. And when we can kind of uh, strip away the caricatures of the devil, and we can look and we look around at the world, I don't think many of us have a difficult time believing that there are powers of evil at work and that there's an enemy wreaking havoc on God's good creation. We see it all around us, right? We see it in greed, we see it in violence, we see it in injustice and lies, we see it in ourselves, right, in our weaknesses, we can see it in disease and in sickness and death. And this passage has a lot to teach us about how the enemy works and about how Jesus both confronts that and carves out another way forward for his followers. Now, most of the stories that we have about Jesus in the Bible actually come from the disciples, right? From the followers, there were people who passed on these stories and eventually they got written down, written, that's my word, written down and put into the Bible. But there's only one place that this story could have come from. Because who was there? Who was out in the wilderness? Just Jesus, right? So Jesus himself must have felt that what happened in his experience out there in the wilderness was important enough that he wanted to make sure his disciples knew about it. And then the, this, the disciples went on to make sure it was remembered, right? That his followers had this story to reflect on as they thought about what it meant to be followers of Jesus in the world. So let's have a look. We are in chapter four of Matthew, which means that Jesus is preparing to set out for his public ministry. Uh, he's just been baptized by John the Baptist, and chapter three closes with Jesus coming out of the water and receiving this affirmation from God. John three, or sorry, Matthew 3.16 says, at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Isn't that an awesome word, alighting? I, when I read that, I was like, I don't, alighting. I don't think I've ever said that. 
saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So momentum is building. Things are on the upswing. Jesus is given this beautiful, powerful affirmation from God. You would think that this would be the point in the text where we would hear about Jesus going out and starting his ministry, right? But instead, this is what Matthew tells us next. Chapter four, verse one. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So before Jesus goes out to do his ministry, the spirit leads him into the desert to be tempted. Now in English, when we use the word tempted, we usually uh, use it to talk about being pulled towards something negative, right? We don't normally talk about being tempted to do something good. Like I wouldn't say like, oh, I was so tempted to donate a bunch of money to charity, but I just like controlled myself, right? Or I was really tempted to take out the garbage, but you know, I I reined it in. But the Greek word that's used here actually has a broader meaning than the way that we tend to use the word. The word that gets translated to uh, tested, or sorry, that's to tempted, can actually be translated into tempted, and some older translations actually do have that uh, word there. And it's a word that's used to describe a challenging circumstance that reveals the truth, that exposes the truth about who somebody really is. Okay, so this is really what the story is talking about. Jesus is being led into the wilderness by the Spirit to go through this testing that would expose the truth about his identity and his character as the Messiah. And then verse two. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now... Seems a little bit common sense, doesn't it? That seems obvious, Matthew. Why do you think that Matthew puts this detail into the story here? Matthew tells us that Jesus was hungry because he wants us to remember that Jesus was a human, right? He was fully God, but he was also fully human and his divinity didn't give him a pass on fully experiencing all of the struggles that came along with that. So Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He's hungry, he's exhausted, he's been in this place of isolation. He's far away from all of the relationships and the activities that have defined his life up to this point. He's in that in-between place It's very vulnerable, right? And then verse three. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, if you experience temptation like this, you know, when you're like out in the parking lot and you see a rock and you're like, man, 
If only I could turn that into a loaf of bread. <laughs> Maybe some of you, if you've like tried the keto diet or whatever, right? <laughs> but most of us would probably say this isn't a temptation that we tend to struggle with on a day-to-day basis. So what's going on here? What is the test? What is the temptation? The devil is targeting Jesus where he's vulnerable, right? This is kind of obvious. Jesus is hungry. And the enemy puts him in a position where he has to decide how he's going to use his power as the Messiah. Will he be self-seeking and use it for his own benefits? Will he act independently from God to take care of his own needs and desires? Or will he trust his father and be obedient even when it comes at a cost? And Jesus responds with scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he refuses to do it. Jesus knows that there is more to life than having our physical needs and desires met. That satisfying his hunger in that moment isn't isn't worth it if it means giving up his intimacy with his father. And this is a good word for us in our consumeristic society where we are so used to getting what we want right when we want it, right? Or at least being told that we should be able to. And then the enemy comes at him again with another temptation in verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it's written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So Jesus is taken to the highest point of the temple, the holiest place in Jerusalem, and the devil challenges him to throw himself down, trusting that God would protect him. Now notice, Jesus responded to the last test with scripture. And so the devil tries a new strategy here. He pulls a verse out of context from Psalm 91, and he tries to use it against Jesus. It's a slimy business, guys. And the temptation here is for Jesus to use his power to get applause and recognition from the crowds to prove that he was somebody important, to prove that God was with him by doing flashy miracles that would get people's attention. And how does Jesus respond? Verse seven, Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus isn't interested in trying to manipulate God or proving that God's with him by doing like these miraculous stunts. He's not going to use his power to try to gain popularity or recognition. That's not how things work in his kingdom, right? And then verse eight, 
It's a third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. So scripture talks about the devil as the present ruler of the world, right? And the enemy takes Jesus up to like a very high mountain and he has him look over at all of the kingdoms of the world and he offers Jesus authority over them. And here's why this is so sneaky. Is Jesus seeking to bring all of the kingdoms of the world under his reign? Is he hoping to do that? He is, right? He's introducing, Jesus is the king, introducing his kingdom. But Satan offers him a shortcut. He offers him all of the authority without the cross. He offers him power over everything without having to deal with people (laughs) and conflict and suffering and sacrifice. All Jesus needs to do is worship him. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 10, he says, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. And you can hear some emotion this time, can't you? And Jesus responds. He tells Satan to get lost and then he references Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In the kingdom of God, the ends never justify the means. We can't use the enemy's strategies to work towards God's purposes. So Jesus refuses to take the shortcut. He won't offer his worship to anyone other than God. And then he moves forward into his calling as the Messiah, knowing that it would mean laying down his life for the sake of others. And then finally, the enemy gives up. There's nothing left to really say or do. Verse 11 says, the enemy, or, then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. They took care of his needs, right? So he had a trust, he waited, and God's angels came and took care of Jesus. Now, this is one of those stories in scripture that has several different layers to it. And this is often the case uh, in scripture and especially within the gospels. Just when you think you understand what the story is all about, there's like another layer to kind of peel back that sheds light on a whole new angle. And there are three different layers to this passage that we're going to look at this morning, okay? because Matthew wants us to notice all of them. First, we're going to talk about how this fits into God's overarching story of salvation. And then we're going to look at what this passage reveals about Jesus as the Messiah. And then we're going to focus on what we can learn from Jesus as we seek to be people who are faithful to God's calling in our own lives. So we'll start here. How does this passage fit? within the overarching story of salvation. Can you think about a couple of people in the Old Testament who found themselves in a situation where they were being tempted by the enemy? 
Anyone come to mind? Adam and Eve, right? Page three, probably, of your Bibles. After God made the world and declared it to be good, the first humans, Adam and Eve, were tempted by the enemy. And how did that go for them? It did not go well. (laughs) They failed, right? And this was the moment in history where everything got thrown off course, where sin and death and evil entered into the world. Now look at Romans 5, verse 17. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Where Adam failed, here Jesus succeeds. And in our passage this morning, we had Jesus coming up out of the waters of his baptism and being led into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested. Can you think of some people in the Old Testament who were led out of the waters and who entered into the wilderness for 40 years and went through a time of testing there? Israelites, that's right. So when Adam failed, God called the nation of Israel to be his chosen people and really to be the vehicles of his salvation to the world. And God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt by parting the Red Sea and then into the wilderness to move towards Mount Sinai. And how does Israel do out in the wilderness? Not very well, right? It does not go very well for them. They whine, they complain, they say, we want to go back. We miss Egypt, right? We miss slavery. It's true. (laughs) And again and again, throughout the Old Testament, we read about the failure of the Israelites to live into their calling as God's representatives in the world. But where Israel failed, here in our passage, Jesus succeeds. What human beings were never able to achieve, Jesus here accomplishes. And in the situations where human beings had always turned away from God, Jesus here remains faithful. Let's look at Romans 3, verse 23. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sin. So in the overarching story of salvation, Jesus is the fulfillment of, to God's promise to set things right once and for all. And the kingdom of God that he ushered in was a kingdom that was completely dependent on him, right? Not us. His kingdom is one that is built on a foundation 
of grace. We enter into what he does, right? Okay, next layer. What does this passage reveal about Jesus as the Messiah? This is a big deal. When Jesus came into the world, he entered into a culture that had some really clearly defined ideas about what they could expect in a Messiah. The only framework that they had to understand what it would look like for a king to come and win victory for their people was through violence and force. And the truth that's revealed about Jesus as he goes through these tests is that he is a completely different Messiah than anybody had ever been able to even imagine. Jesus is given every opportunity to use his identity as the Messiah for his own advantage, for comfort, for status, for power, for success, for wealth, but he won't do it. In Matthew 16, we can see how difficult this was for the disciples to really even wrap their heads around. This is the passage where Jesus asks his followers who they say that he is, right? What they think about his identity. And Peter, always the first one to speak, right? Peter pipes up, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So Peter has the language, right? He's got the name, he's got the title, he's got the language, he's right. But then Jesus goes on to tell the disciples that he's gonna suffer and that he's going to give up his life. And Peter pulls Jesus aside and he says, never, right? This will never happen to you. In Peter's mind, a Messiah that is killed is a Messiah that has failed. He has no framework for understanding a victory that could come through self-sacrificing love. But how does Jesus respond to him? He responds to Peter in a very similar way to the way that he just responded to the devil. He says, get behind me, Satan. He actually addresses the enemy. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The ways of the kingdom are completely countercultural. They were in Jesus' time, and they are today. As human beings, we are still chasing after the same kinds of things that they were back then, right? Things like comfort, power, status, wealth, success. And throughout uh, history, we have seen over and over again how terribly everything goes wrong when we misuse scripture to justify our attempts to get ahead. But Jesus shows us another way. He shows us a way of life that's centered in love, a way of life that's willing to lay itself down for the sake of others, a way of life that trusts God and puts his will above everything else. 
And the last layer of this passage that we're going to look at this morning is really practical because we all know what it feels like to find ourselves in tests, right? In challenging situations that really kind of expose, reveal the truth about who we are and uh, where we're at. And I think we all have situations that we can remember, that we can think about where we've been proud of the decisions that we've made in those moments. And I'm sure that we can all think of situations where we are not so proud of what was exposed in us and of this, the decisions that we made in those moments. It's interesting that this whole episode takes place while Jesus is in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting. It's when Jesus is vulnerable that the enemy confronts him and tries to pull him off course from his calling. I mean, think about the realities of what Jesus was facing while he was out there. Jesus was hungry. We all know how dangerous that can be. We all know that what hunger can bring out in us. He was tired. He was far away from his friends and family. Everything that was familiar to him had been stripped away. He was in this in-between space where one season of his life had come to an end and he was moving into a new season that was going to come along with a lot of pain and challenges. As I was studying this passage this week, I was imagining Jesus on the exercise ball on, uh, in the chaos stage of transition on that transition bridge that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And we know that Jesus was communing with God while he was out in the wilderness, that he was being strengthened through that relationship. And yet he was struggling with all of the normal, painful realities that any human would be dealing with under those circumstances. Now, Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit for this time of testing. But in our lives, we can find ourselves in the wilderness for all kinds of different reasons. And there's a vulnerability that comes along with those challenging seasons that the enemy often tries to take advantage of. And what is the first strategy that the devil uses to try to pull Jesus off course? Did you notice? He takes a shot at Jesus' identity. Jesus had just heard the voice of God declare over him, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And before you know it, the enemy shows up and says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The devil points out how bleak Jesus' circumstances are and the underlying message of what he says is that if God really loved him, if he really was God's son, if God really was with him, then he wouldn't be facing these kinds of challenges. God would give him a way out. The book of John calls Satan the father of lies. That's John 8 verse 44. And Dallas Willard has said this, when Satan undertook to draw Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick, but with an idea. It was an idea that God could not be trusted and that she must act on her own to secure her own well-being. When we think about being tempted 
by the enemy. Normally, we think about being pulled towards doing the things that we all know are wrong. But in scripture, most often, when the enemy pulls people off course from their calling, he uses three subtle kinds of deception. He does it by deceiving people with lies about who they are, with lies about who God is, and with lies about what will make them happy. And what we see in Jesus in this passage is a steadfast trust in what he knows to be true about himself and about his father and about what will bring him true fulfillment. Jesus knew who he was. He clung to the truth that was declared over him during his baptism, that he was God's son, that he was loved, and that God was well pleased with him. Do you believe that those things are true of you? That regardless of your circumstances and how challenging they might be, that you are a child of God, that God loves you, that he's even well pleased with you, No matter how many mistakes you've made or what kind of doubts you're wrestling with or what the world says about you, you are covered by God's grace and your value and your identity are wrapped up in him. The things that we believe ourselves shape so much of how we live. And there's all kinds of studies on this. Self-help books will tell you that if you want to start working out every day, one of the strategies you can use is you can start telling yourself that you are the kind of person who works out every day. And then often your behavior will start to follow the things that you're telling yourself about who you are. And this works the opposite way too. If you grew up being told that you were no good and that you would never amount to anything, and that lie took root in your heart and in your mind. It probably got in the way of your willingness to step out and take risks because you believed you'd fail. This is how self-fulfilling prophecies work. And what we believe about our identity matters because what we think and the way we act all flow out of that. And what's true about your identity is that you are a child of God, that you are loved by him, and that he is well pleased with you. That means he doesn't just love you, he actually likes you. This is good news. Jesus also knew the truth about who God is. He trusted that God was faithful and good and that God was with him. Last week, Robert asked you to think about the first thing that comes to mind for you when you think about God. Do you think about God as being distant or angry? Or do you think about God as being close and loving and good? A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Again and again, scripture tells us that God is faithful that he's patient, that he's loving, that he's kind, that he's powerful, that he's strong, he's holy, he's righteous, that everything he does is good and right and just. What we believe about God shapes the way we see ourselves and others and the way we live every single day. 
And Jesus knew the truth about what would bring him fulfillment. He knew that none of the quick fixes that the enemy held out before him would really make him happy. Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us that it was for joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Jesus knew that he had a purpose. It was a purpose worth living for and it was a purpose worth dying for. He came to set humanity free from the power of sin and evil and death and to reconcile us to God once and for all so that all things could be made new. And he was not prepared to sacrifice that for a sandwich. How much time and money do we spend chasing after things that we think will make us happy, but that always end up disappointing us in the end? St. Augustine once wrote, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. God has a purpose for our lives, and it's only in him that we find true fulfillment. 